Yo, the diversity hires. Find us across all social media at Div Hires Pod, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Go to that Patreon, become a subscriber or a patron, or whatever the phrase is, patreon.com backslash Div Hires Pod, thediversityhires.com. We're back at you with a new episode. Shu, what are we talking about and who is joining us? Today, we're going to talk about transitioning to writing, transitioning from another career, from another career, perhaps in the entertainment industry or not. Maybe you're transitioning from being a janitor to writing. But for that, we're going to have... Wait, uh, stop. A- if, if, you're, if you're transitioning from a janitor to writing, hit us up. We'd like to talk to you. For real. If you have done that, actually, that's not... I bet that's not that abnormal. I wouldn't There's hear it. a lot of people probably that we work with. Yes. Hit us up. If you were a janitor and then you got a call that you got your first gig writing in Hollywood, we'd love to hear. But nothing in between. Story. I don't want to hear anything in between. I just want to hear straight janitor to like just, take off the coveralls and go to a showrunner meeting. I mean, just janitorial services. Hear. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Keep Continue. Okay. So for this, for this transitioning to writing episode... We're going to have uh, our coworker, a JWP, John Wells Productions person, my coworker on Animal Kingdom, fellow writer, Vanessa Baden Kelly. It should be fun. Let's do it. Drop the music. diversity hires where Sherman Shue shoot the shit about screenwriting. We are two professional film and television writers and we come here every week to give you the lowdown on the business, the culture, and especially the craft of writing from a distinctly black point of view. I am Shukri Hassan Tillman. Some people call me Shue. I'll leave you in the middle of nowhere like the letter H. You know who it is. The G Swope, the greatest screenwriter of all time, the living embodiment of the Courier Farm. It's me, Sherman Payne. Welcome to the show. Shu, how you doing? I'm all right. I'm doing well today. Uh, you know, this is this is being aired probably a week after um, Biden came on and had his national address about the pandemic. Yes. Uh, and about the uh, uh, you know our progress, I feel very encouraged by that. I know that's affecting everybody, um, from people in our industry to just people you know, in general, uh, personally and professionally. And it kind of feels good to start to feel like there's real light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I think Texas and Mississippi, as I think I said before, are crazy along with other states that kind of opened up too early. But we in Los Angeles are starting to do that now, too. Gyms and indoor dining and all that stuff is going to open on Monday. So we'll see. We're playing with fire, but let's hope we don't get burnt. We will. It's America. <laughs> we will. Here comes the next surge, but hopefully enough people are vaccinated. So <laughs> right. So we're, we're fucked, but we, maybe, we, maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. How... How are you doing, Sherm? You you you're 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 knee deep in projects, bro. 
Yeah, man. You know, I mean, I think people are going to get tired of me saying that I have a lot of stuff on my plate. Uh, I really do. I have five jobs right now, you know, all at various different states. I'm teaching at Columbia University, which has taken a lot of my time as well. So, you know, I'm staying occupied, man, you know, but I always make time to uh, record the diversity hires. <laughs> this is the number one priority. The podcast <laughs> no, that I no. do for free. The way you, I mean, the way you said that, no one believes you. No, <laughs> just but so I, I do clear. have fun doing this. You, you basically said, "I got all this other, and I got to record this thing." <laughs> but I'm here. I think that's what counts is that I'm actually sitting here recording this show. That's good. That, that that is true. That that helps. And I love how all of your uh, the things that you're doing are all actually little flexes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know. I just like again, I, I said this last time. If my mere existence is a flex, if I'm just moving through my life as a flex, then so be it. I guess I'm flexing. <laughs> I mean, you you know, what do you want me to say? It's, it is what it is. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, what else is going on in the world? I know there's some things. One big thing we want to talk about before we get into our uh, to our guest today. Do you want to set it up or no? You set it up. I mean, I just think that we listen. We everybody should know we go back and forth on text all the time about <laughs> what we're going to talk about. This is a very very big topic, and I was a proponent of what I think we'll do is come back to this and talk about it in depth. Yes. Um, but you said like, yo, let's get into it. Let's give like a little preview. Let's let's just at least touch the subject. So. I'll let you set it up, and I'm ready to jump in wherever you'll have me. Yeah, I, th- I like that, and uh, I think we will gain some. Uh, we'll, we'll get a bitter, a bigger, uh, in-depth look at this. So basically, um, yesterday, at least as of this recording, yesterday, a report came out. Uh, I was reported in the trades from McKinsey and Company, an analysis of uh, film and television and uh, the film and television industry. And the lack of specifically uh, black inclusion, specifically black inclusion as it comes to on-screen and off-screen talent. And with a special, and this is perfect for this episode, I think, with a special look at the lack of off-screen talent, off-screen black talent inclusion. It's a extremely in-depth uh, report. We will put it into the um uh, if you guys subscribe, we'll put it into the uh, mailing list notes, the link. Yeah. First of all, everybody um, go to the diversityhires.com and sign up for the newsletter. AKB puts in all this info, everything we touch on, he puts a link in so you can like do the required reading beforehand. You can get to the articles that we're discussing and really have your own point of view on it. We're not going to read the whole thing to you. So no. sign up for the newsletter so you get that info and you can actually check it out yourself. It, it's a fantastic and fantastic report in the sense that it is incredibly in depth, and it essentially makes the point that two things: that Hollywood is still, even into twenty twenty one, woefully uh, inept in including black talent as it comes to black off screen talent as it comes to. Uh, creators of television shows, showrunners, executives, agents, producers, on down the line, uh, woefully uh, inadequate. And furthermore, it makes the point, this is the second point, that by doing that, 
they're actually leaving money on the table. And the, and the estimate that they put out is about $10 billion with a motherfucking B a year by a year, $10 billion annually left on the table because of not having that inclusion. And the way they get there, which I won't go too in-depth on, is essentially by looking at the projects that do exist that have off-screen and on-screen Black talent and how they perform financially. And (laughs) the lack of those or the lack of more of those essentially leaves money on the table. I mean, yeah, to even break it down further, what they're saying is in terms of return on investment, Black projects are it. You know what I mean? Black projects are at the top of the pyramid in terms of return on investment. And just to jump in on this point real quick, Shu, and I really hope that we do a whole episode about this because I think it's going to deserve the deeper conversation that we can. We will. This this is about go read it. And then when we go, everybody go read everybody. Our 300 people that listen, go read it. And then we'll do a we'll do a thing. But But this this gets to, you know, from a personal standpoint, I spent years hearing that black movies don't travel. Black movies Mm -hmm. don't make money. Black movies don't open at the box office. And always hearing these sort of, sometimes actually from other black executives and people in the industry as well, saying like, "Mm, can we find a white co-lead? Can we elevate this white character? Who's going to be on the poster? Not always that direct, but there was always this sense that, yes, you can do a black movie, uh, but it either needs to be super low budget because it's not going to make that much money, or you need to find some way to make it quote unquote multicultural so that people actually see it. This report Mm -hmm. calls bullshit on that. Right. That means to break it down, this report says put out black movies with black people in front of and also behind the camera and you're going to make money. And I think that the industry, they're catching up to that a little bit. I think Mm -hmm. when things like Get Out, you know, makes, you know, 20 times its budget and something like uh, Black Panther even outperforms its fellow uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, I think finally people are starting to catch up. I don't know if that has yet translated to new jobs and new projects yet. But I do get a sense that the industry is finally starting to wake up to that reality. I I, I totally agree. And this is the last point I'll make on it, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for this little preview section, which is that none of the stuff in the report is surprising. It's almost like the January, it's almost like the Capitol ride. Like it's both not surprising and yet completely shocking at the same time. When you sort of look at the numbers and you look at how few, you know, for example, there's 5%, 5% of television shows. True. Can, can are, I make another another analogy? Yes. It's sort of like marrying into the royal family. It's not surprising <laughs> that they're racist, but it's still shocking to hear those allegations at the same time. Okay, continue. That's, that's a more timely reference. Yes, absolutely. But uh, yes, agreed. But for, when you read stuff like 5% of 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 all television showrunners are black. 5%. That means 95% didn't take much to do the math. 95% are not, right? So, I mean, that's crazy. 5%. So the point, a lot of the numbers points that the, that the report was making, and we should move on, is that in terms of numbers and percentages and proportion of uh, black talent, uh, black off-screen talent in this case, um, 
you know, it's not even approaching the population of the U.S. So even oh. if you try to use that as a baseline to say like, oh, okay, well, 13.2%. Yeah, it's not of, even halfway there. It, it's not even close. Yeah. It's not even there. It's, it's, not, it's, it, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's something we all knew, Shu. I think any black person who cares about this industry, even if you're not working in the industry yet, you care about the industry, you follow it. If you are a working black professional, you know it in your bones. But it's really, really interesting to see it put to print with objective facts to support it. I want to say one more thing before we go on, because this does, I think, relate a little bit to our guests in terms of performing in front of the camera. And I found this part really fascinating. This is from the deadline summary of the report. It says, when it comes to talent in front of the camera, the study found that up-and-coming Black actors receive significantly fewer chances to make Mm -hmm. their mark in leading roles than white actors. In the first 10 years of work, emerging Black actors get an average of six leading roles while their white counterparts get nine, which is 50% more. One, it didn't take much to do that math either, true, but that's 50% more. And this, I, won't, I don't want to dwell on this, but you know, when you're a writer and you're getting stuff off the ground, people are always asking you, well, who, who do you see in this role? Can you come up with a list of people that you potentially see in this role? And I used to really struggle because I was like, all my favorite black actors are grandpas. You know, and I think like <laughs> lately that's changed. We've gotten the real injection of young talent, but ten years ago it was like, oh, Will Smith and Denzel, and then you look even older than that. It's like Morgan Freeman and Samuel L. Jackson, and there wasn't this crop of like young twenty-something actors. And we could all name a few, but there wasn't this. But you look at, for example, white people; they have a deep, deep bench of twenty-something, thirty-something. Uh, actors, and we didn't really have that. And I think this explains why. It's because people aren't getting the chances to shine and rise to that star level at the same way that their white counterparts are. And so it takes people well into their 40s sometimes to really become a star. And by that time, there's a different set of roles for them than the typical young romantic lead. Sure. I'm speaking of uh, crops of young Black talent on screen and off screen Let's bring in our guest, Vanessa Baden-Kelly, former, well, not former, actor, on-screen talent and off-screen talent. Vanessa, how are you doing? I'm good. I have so much to say. Say it. (laughs) Please. Say it. Yeah. Say it. Please say this. I'm over here nodding and like church waving. I have so much to say about this. Well, tell us, please. Go ahead. There's no form to this. Go ahead. (laughs) This podcast is completely formless, Vanessa. You just say whatever you want at any given time. It's so interesting. This obviously I read the report yesterday and it's been circulating around like my friend groups. But it's so interesting because that's what actually made me make the transition from predominantly acting to writing was Mm. at the time that I came back into the industry, I went to school, you know, we'll talk about that. But the time I came back, if you were a black actress of a certain age at that time, I was in my early Mm twenties, the roles were given to Journey Smollett, if it was mainstream, Mm -hmm. Megan Good and Lauren London, if it was a little bit more urban, it like, it was those three people. I had been in auditions where you, I had heard the casting, I will not read for this particular casting director to this day where the casting director said, I don't know why we have all these girls in here. We just want Lauren. Mm. So so we started writing, I started writing to create roles, honestly, vehicles for ourselves and for our friends. Yeah. Um, And at that time, that's what Issa was doing. There was like a, a collective of people who were doing web series and Issa and my best friend James were a part of it. And we were throwing each other like, 
work and DPs and gaffers and all of that. Um, but it's so interesting that even now there is a damn acting Emmy on my shelf and people will be like, ah, yeah, but I don't really know if she can pull it off. I've been a series regular on two shows. I starred in Rosewood. I have an Emmy and they're like, I just don't know. But they will take like, <laughs> they'll take like a chance on some girl that had like a five episode arc on freaking Pretty Little Liars. And it's just such a, it's such mm. a different world for us. Well, and so what do you what do you attribute that to now? I mean, you were talking about sort of what it was, whether it was Lauren and and Journey, and but like, what do you attribute that to now? Like that they'll give a chance to some CW five episode arc actress, <laughs> but not somebody as esteemed as yourself. What do you attribute it to? Well, I think some there's there's a few things, and I don't mm. know if you guys have seen this in in writers' rooms, but I've seen it in writers' rooms as well as in reads. Right, I think that the black voice. And I, I'm, I'm even going to go as far as saying a middle class, lower middle class voice is different than the voices of the folks who are generally running rooms and are generally writing and mm -hmm. producing. Because mm -hmm. even stuff from the craft of acting, as simple as cadence and mm -hmm. like the, the word order and the word choice that you would use or where you would put your inflections, it it's different for us. And a lot of times people will feel like that's uh, that's not... Um, natural, it's over the top, it's whatever. But if you're in my house, that's what it sounds like every single day. Yeah. And if you're in, and if you're in a lot of poor white houses, I'm from the south, so in a, that's how they speak as well. But mm. when you're writing or performing for a group of folks that you are not a part of, your perception of how they sound is based entirely on your imagination, not mm -hmm. on what it actually is. And so we're actually fighting against the white imagination or upper crust white imagination of who we are, and that's difficult. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I've never heard it put like that, but that is so true. The white lens is very, very strong in terms of what we uh, think is realistically black versus what we think is something else. And it's it's funny because it does not come usually from a black source. No, it doesn't. Not mm -hmm. at all. It's crazy. That's very interesting. Well, take us back just a little bit um, and, and back up. So She dropped so many interesting points of her story. It's like, where to start? There's an Emmy. There's an acting yeah. career. <laughs> there's transitioning like, from acting to writing. Like, Shu, I'm going to leave it to you to pick where you insert <laughs> no yourself. Because that was like two minutes, but there was like 17 things that, I, that I'm interested in. So I'll leave it to you. Uh, this is all going to just be a guess. So why don't we start with... Take us to that transition. Talk a little bit about how you got into acting to begin with, because you were a child oh. actor also. You've been in there for a while. Yeah. And then how did that, like, take us up to, if you can, like, okay, now I want to write. And then maybe we can dig down into, like, how that happened. Word. Got it. Okay. So um, my family's from Seychelles. Um, they, I'm the first girl born in the U.S. So, you know, when your family, you come from a family that is not American, their idea of, like, the American dream is going and getting a college education, a terminal degree, and then like making money, getting married, having kids. Mm -hmm. So that was always the plan for me. I grew up in my grandma's house and my mom kind of did some like uh, print modeling. And so she she had me young. So part of the ways that we would spend time with together is that she would take me to this place in Orlando, which is like 45 minutes from where I grew up, to go to like an acting and modeling school. And at the time, that's when they were like doing in Florida, what they were doing in Atlanta right now, which is trying to move everything out there because there were all these rebates for production. Mm -hmm. And Nickelodeon had more or less stationed themselves there. So 
I mean, there's like what five black. It's it's the '90s. It's like '92. There's like five black kids acting at the time. So we all just kept working. <laughs> like there was no, it, it had nothing to do with being like crazy talented at the time. We just kept working because there was five of us and it was cheaper to have us than to fly kids in from other places. Mm. So I started on my brother and me. I went for, and I literally, I was cast on all these shows, but far less cast, more like, hey, go grab Vanessa. Um, mm-hmm. So it was, I started on my brother and me, went from my brother and me to Gullah Gullah Island and I was only supposed to, I was only supposed to have a little stupid five episode arc. And then um, they moved me up to to series regular after my third episode. Um, so they had to like rewrite the entire season to include me in that. Um, and this was all shooting in Orlando. This all was at in Orlando. Universal or wherever. Yeah, at okay. Universal Studios. And then, um, so all that was filming across the hall from us. So when Brian Robbins, who's now running every fucking thing, was coming through, he was he was still directing. He was like coming off of head of the class, trying to figure out what he was doing next. And he was bringing in all of the young talent, the Malcolm Jamal Warners and the Kim Fields, to kind of figure out their next chapter of life. So they were collaborating to do all these these Nickelodeon shows. Mm-hmm. So when all that was across. Um, the hall, they gave Keenan and Kel their own spinoff and they needed a sister. So they were like, go grab the girl from Gullah Gullah across. <laughs> so then I came in to do Keenan and Kel. And while doing Keenan and Kel, myself and one of my um one of my co-stars from Gullah Gullah got a call for Rosewood. And when we walked in, John Singleton was straight up like, you guys already have the role. My kids watch Gullah Gullah. So it was ah, like, it was just this like this complete ball roll. So I did those shows from when I was seven to like 15. The last two episodes, or I'm sorry, the last two seasons of Keenan and Kel were filmed out here at Nick on Sunset. And that's when my role decreased because now I was the more expensive one to bring me in from Florida to, so I'm like in like half the season. Mm -hmm. But also Nickelodeon was on like some slavery shit back then. We weren't getting broke off like Miley them. Like it right. was, it was right. on some straight up slavery shit. So I was still going back home to school, you know, still a latchkey kid when I went home, still riding my bike. There was, it wasn't the same fanfare as happened post Hannah Montana, right? Mm. So after all of those shows wrapped, um, of course, you know, I'm still in that mode, but my there's no version of this where my family is going to be like move to Los Angeles, move to New York and pursue this. That's not what they came to America for. So I just stopped and I went to college and I thought I was going to go for screenwriting. I was there for television writing for a second, switched to sociology. I started doing activism and then I was a community organizer for the next six years. And then uh, basically I was right right around the time, a little bit before Trayvon, it was, I was working for Ben Crump and I was just trying to figure out if I wanted to continue and move on to this other MPO in DC or if I wanted to stay in Florida. And he was like, baby, you know, it would help us a lot if there were more people in Hollywood that cared about what we were doing. So if you're still interested in that, I think that would be helpful. Came back and told my grandparents and they were, they had actually been thinking the same thing. So this was just a shot in the dark coming back out to Los Angeles. And I came back out and like for two weeks, I was teaching and uh, and organizing at the time. And my old manager or old manager set me up with new managers. They took me on and I came back and I did not book <laughs> at all for like the at, first at, year. This is, and you're at pursuing what, acting what, at this point. Yeah, that's acting, what I was going to yes. ask. Okay. Still pursuing acting. So I don't book for like the, actually, I have an Emmy and I've still never booked anything. I have not booked since I moved back 10 years ago. Took all the took all the meetings, took all the auditions. People, I, I, there was a point, probably like 
2012, I wasn't even auditioning anymore. I was just going into producers, but I wasn't, a lot had changed in acting. One, there was very little meritocracy. Not that there had been a lot before, but very little now. It was much more about the name. The internet was here. But even more so, there just weren't a lot of roles for us. And Wait, so, can, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Just when Ben Crump or someone with him, Ben Crump himself or someone there suggests ben, that maybe Ben, ben himself, said it. Ben said, ben baby, says, we need you there. Ben says, go, do you interpret that to mean like we need you anywhere you fit in, like be, be it executive, actor, writer, whatever? Or did you take it to me specifically, we need you in front of the camera? What, what did you take that to mean? Well, if you know Ben, he needed me in front of the camera because he, needs, he gotcha. needs folks that can say more. But at, but now, um, at, now I can look and say um, that our relationship, I consider him my uncle, our relationship has been so symbiotic that it really could have been interpreted anyway. I took it okay. as one thing, but um, gotcha. it could have been anyway. So we came back out here and, or I came here, my best friend, James, who had gone, I went to Florida State. FAMU is quite literally across the railroad tracks from us. And we grew up in the same town. So we've been knowing each other since we were kids. He was already here. Um, he was frat brothers with Will Packer. They, uh, Will Packer's his pro fight. So he mm. had come here on a whim and worked and worked on takers and a few other things. And we were all friends with Will as well, because little known fact, Ben Crump and his former law partner were there, uh, who was also his profite, were, um, they were his legal counsel for him and Rob Hardy's legal counsel for all the early oh, stuff. Okay. So, I mean, and they were like fresh out of law school. It was really on some like line brother hookup. <laughs> so we all knew Will as well. So James had come out here to work on takers and then he ended up in the Sony system. So when I got here and he was having issues kind of staff and he wanted to direct um, and I wanted to act, we just decided to start writing. And that's kind of how it happened. Uh, real quick, shout out to James. Me and James hung out. <laughs> me and James hung out heavy at uh, Sundance 2020. He told me. Love James. Uh, he's he's uh, boys with uh, Will Catlett, who's in uh, my movie, Charm City Kings. And James yeah. was there. We chopped it up a lot. Found out that we had a loose connection between uh, Vanessa and yeah. uh, just shout out James, man. He's he's doing his thing, and he he's the he's one of the creative forces behind Giants as well, right? Yes, yeah. He actually created Giants. Giants was his. I was a. Uh, he just basically came in one day and was like, "Friend, I need you to do this." And I was like, "Okay." I didn't know what the fuck I was saying yes to. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So that's so that's how we started writing. We did our first web series that went to all hip hop. It was it. I don't even have enough time to tell the story how it ended up getting co-produced by Play from Kid and Play. He bankrolled us. Um, we met him in Best Buy. That's how it happened. We were passing out flyers like club flyers. And he was like, I think I want to do this. And bankrolled us. I bullshit you not. That's exactly how it happened. Wow. Um, <laughs> where, um, where, which Best Buy? It was in Tallahassee. Because we were okay. we we got in a car and just drove all over the nation to places where we had hookups and we can go speak to BSUs and stuff like that to get them to watch the web series. And when wow. we went to Tallahassee, he was teaching at FAM. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so we did that and it did well for all hip hop, but we still were kind of like it. Th there just still wasn't really a market for web series. But James went on to do first um, with Issa and Will. And uh, around what time around what year is this? 2011, 12 ish. And so when you're making this transition, I just want to dig down a little sure, bit. Sure. Yeah. So when you're when you're making this transition now, you're like, man, I have I have I've come back. I, I've left my life, sort of, not left it, but I left yeah. my life as a as a as a community organizer. I'm going to try to jump back into acting, maybe being in Hollywood in front of the camera is a way to sort of bring some light to these issues. You try and try, 
it doesn't work out, you start to shift to writing kind of with, um, it it seems like that door might be open. Now, had you had, had you like, how did you learn to write? Had you, had you, you know what I'm saying? Like how did, how did all that? Yeah. Okay. So a few, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, and, and, and before you say that, did James ask you to come write? Did he say like, yes. oh, you can write? Okay. So how no. did you, how did all <laughs> Yes and no. Okay. Okay. Tell us. So the way, so I was always writing prose, right? And like, Shu, you know, like I have a book coming out. And yes. So prose has always been my thing. That was my, like, always writing prose. When we were kids, both Malcolm Jamal Warner and Kim Fields told us, and I can, I can tell you where we were when they said it. They told me, they told Keenan, they told Kale, there is going to come a point when you're going to have to transition whether it's directing or writing, you're going to have to do one. Mm. The boys started writing. I wanted to be a director because that's what she was. Mm-hmm. So I had like, we would be like in the tutoring trailer fucking around with this type of stuff, but I didn't, I thought I was going to be a director. Fast mm-hmm. forward when I came out here, I was like, oh, and I saw what James is going through with directing. I was like, okay, maybe the natural thing for me is to write because I already understand the momentum of television. I already understand beats. I are like, mm-hmm. I already have like, it's it's part of like my DNA from growing up in it. Um, mm-hmm. But I still didn't understand a lot. I understand a lot less than I thought I did. And throughout that time, I was still in classes because I really, truly, a whole nother thing. I really, truly believe that actors and actresses should be trained. Um, it's a craft. You can't, it's a science and a craft. You can't oh. just into it. Thank so. you for saying that. Wait, I want to just say, like, thank you for saying that because I think, uh, you know, I lived, Shu, me and Shu lived in New York for a long time and there was, and, and the acting scene in New York is definitely theater-based, right? Yeah. Training, yeah. craft, theater-based. And you come to LA and shout out to all my LA actors who take it seriously, but a lot of people who call themselves actors in LA really would also just take like a reality show too. It's, That's right. They just want to be in front of the camera. <laughs> and so just like we are proponents of writers really taking it seriously, whether it's formalized education or not, but taking it seriously and really learning. I want to be also a big proponent, like actors, really take your craft seriously. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have to go get a four-year degree or a master's degree, but take the craft seriously and learn how to do it. Okay, That's right. So... So the classes I was taking at the time, I was I was um, going between Lee Strasberg and some stuff with the Meisner method. You also had to take playwriting. And so I was learning a lot of plays in that time. Um, and at the same time, because I was just, I didn't have anything to do. I wasn't working. I wasn't booking. I was also at the Groundlings. And so we were taking sketch there. We had to take sketches. You go up. The, so I was writing in those ways and kind of like learning a little bit more there. But I really feel like Because we didn't start doing Giants until, well, the first season of Giants, I didn't write on. I wrote on the second season. Mm. Um, The We didn't start doing Giants until I was already in the Ozark room. And I really and truly feel like Ozark was my master class of writing. And I feel like the, the, not only the writers, but the showrunner, who is now one of my best friends, they created and made time to teach me the craft. Um, and talk. Ozark actually made me go get my MFA in writing. So what were you doing talk, in the Ozark yeah. room? Like, yeah, what was yeah, your yeah, job? Talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was showrunner's assistant there, and I got it literally because of my child. Um, I was I was at a documentary film company at the time um, that they were staffing Ozark. I was two months postpartum, um, and I was dying. Uh, you know, it was it was like what I thought was a great mix of organizing because also through all that time, I was still organizing at Community Coalition South LA because I never mm-hmm. really take my organizer hat off. This is like mm-hmm. the longest I've ever gone without it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, so I was doing all those things, but I felt like even though I was training that I wasn't getting like on, I, I wasn't getting hands-on work. 
So I went and took a job at um, Brave New Films, which was a documentary oh, yeah. film company that also did that basically based in social justice. And I was doing a lot of their short stuff. I was doing a lot of their writing, writing for freaking time and all of that shit. It was fun, but it really wasn't exactly what I wanted to be doing. And from being in those sketch groups, a girlfriend of mine was like, hey, I'm leaving my job after being in a drama room, I realized I don't want to do drama. My boss helped me find a job in someplace else. Do you want me to put you up for showrunner's assistant? And I said, sure. So I go to this meeting and y'all, I'm, I had to like pump before I got in the car. Like I said, <laughs> I'm too, and like one of my, I'm sorry to like, whatever you guys have. Kids. No, do it. One yeah, of my yeah, boobs is engorged. So I'm driving on the 10 with like a hand pump. I'm like, Breast milk is everywhere. I get to where, and I did it on my lunch break. Like I didn't tell my bosses where I was going to take this, to take this like interview or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I meet Chris Mundy, who's a showrunner of Ozark at like a cafe. And I come in like a fucking hurricane. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I had to pump in the car. And, and Shakri <laughs> knows like, I have outbursts like that. And he, he was like, oh, what pump do you use? Wow. And nice. so we start talking. So we really only talk about craft for maybe 10 minutes of that meeting. The rest is about kids and schools and what it's like here and coming from other places because he's from um, Nebraska. And mm. then the next day he calls me or the next, I'm sorry, the next week he calls and it's like, you're the obvious choice. He was like, but beyond, I just want you to be beyond work. I just want you to be in a place where you'll be safe to be a mom and sort it all out without having to feel the pressures of your job. Wow. 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 That's great. MVP I mean, right what, there. Yeah. Yes. yes. So, Come on. So I went to Ozark and I did not have sh typical showrunner's assistant hours. My my kids' daycare closed at five. So I was out at 445 every day, even if they were still in the room. Mm. Um, like I just, I have not had a typical experience in that way, but in that I would be listening to them break story and mm. listening to these minds. Half the time I was fucking lost. I was like, I do not even understand how white people have so much time in a day that they're <laughs> raising their children and reading the fucking New Yorker every morning. <laughs> how? I don't get it. Um, and they would like spitball names and authors and folk. And I'm like, I don't know any of this. And then coming from acting, you think you understand what a beat is, right? Mm -hmm. And then they would be like, okay, put this beat on the board, that beat on the board. And I would have no idea what they were talking about. So maybe like my third month in, I he asked me how everything was going. I went to his office. I, got, I was like, Chris, how do you know what a beat is? And like, I remember looking at him and it like clicked for him. And after that, we would download almost every day what we talked about, why this works, why this doesn't work. And then he wow. kept me on over the summer with him, even when we were on hiatus. And he was like, you have five months before we start the room again. Write every script you can because I'm sitting right here and I can break them down with you. Wow. So I wow. must have wrote eight scripts in between the two summers, between one and two and two and three. Um, and one of those scripts is sold now at JWP and got me staff. What? What a Amazing. fucking story! Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> wow. That's that's one of the best. That's that's great because what a a lot of things we talk about here. Not to like, I mean, I get a, a little sentimental when I talk about this stuff. But Sherman is not a sentimental person. <laughs> but um, but but I always think that like a common theme in these stories, and Sherman knows where I'm going is like the concept of the advocate. Yeah. There's always somebody along the way, and usually several people, but there's somebody along the way who does something a little bit different that they, you know, 
maybe wouldn't have otherwise done or whatever, or other people wouldn't have done it that way. And they decide to take you under their wing a little bit and push you to that next step. And that's invaluable, uh, you know, for, for anybody's career and anybody's life. But I got to tell you, you know, I, a lot of people are like, you give Chris Mundy too much credit. I don't like he, I didn't know what I was doing before then Mm -hmm. when we were writing giants, he allowed us to come in with the giant scripts and writers from Ozark would look over our scripts. Like Chris mm. looked over our scripts. I got to leave early to go film giants. The whole room watched it like, and critique, like it, we were supported in a way that when I tell other people, they look at me like wide eyed. Cause they've never seen that type of support. But to, to Chris's credit, one, he's not married to a white lady. And two, he's like, and two, <laughs> he's, he was a Rolling Stone writer for so long that, He's he has like a like he was on tour with like fucking salt and pepper and like all these crazy people in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. So like he just has this idea and he like like him and I Atlanta premiered when I was in that room and we would geek out over Atlanta together via text. And then all we would do the next day is discuss last night's episode of Atlanta. So it was like we and like he grabbed Alexa Fogel as our casting director because she casted The Wire and to him, that's the best show that was ever written. Mm-hmm. So he just has a different sensibility about what sto- now, and he'll be the first to tell you Ozark is white as shit. So like, it's, I mean, it's, it's set in the Ozarks, right? Exactly. <laughs> um, but it's he just has a different sensibility, and so one of the things that I've realized that I was very lucky with with Chris was much like a Paul Sims on on Atlanta. If he didn't understand something, he could at least identify that it was the black voice, and he didn't try to fix it. Like he was like, no, this is fine. Leave that. If they don't get that. It's whatever. Let's just fix the story. That's so valuable. Yeah. Sherm, I have a, I don't want to jump on a question you might have. Sherm, no, please I got, go. I want to. So, okay. I want to get into a little craft geekiness a little bit. Okay. Uh, so I want to know like, cause it's such a great story. And so now you start to kind of make the transition. Now you're, you're writing and I kind of want to take it up to not necessarily animal kingdom specifically, but just like mm-hmm. you're writing mm-hmm. and what from a craft perspective, what did you learn from that period from Ozark during writing those eight scripts or whatever you were saying during those two summers? Like what were the sort of key craft things that you didn't know before sure. that you were able to put into practice that made the difference? Um, Is that okay. too big of a question? You know what I'm saying? No, yeah. I, but I can try to distill it into one or two things. I, like I said, I feel like I learned so much on Ozark. The major thing that I've always loved about that room, and I and I rarely see it in other places, is um, the. Well, also, also to be clear, Ozark gets like three months to break story, like to Blue mm-hmm. Sky. So yeah. I also recognize that a lot of it is a function of how much time they have. Sure. Um, but Ozark really is one of the best planned shows I've ever seen. Like. When you're breaking an episode of Ozark, you already know what's happening in that episode. You're trying to figure out how to make it interesting. You're trying to figure out how to make, what would the character, I mean, to the point that if you handed off somebody's break to somebody else, nobody's confused about what's happening. Like Mm. it would just be in a different voice because somebody else is writing that episode. Mm. Um, And so one of the things that that has taught me craft wise is, is the plan and is having the plan. And it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of 
what you hear me say in the room a lot. Like, I don't understand where we're going. <laughs> I don't understand where the, I don't understand what the end is. Like, what is the end game? But would they do that if that's where we're going? Mm -hmm. um, and so what Ozark taught me, and this is real craft geekiness is, you know, a lot of times you'll hear writers say, I, I don't want to just tack on this story. I don't want to just tack on this scene or just tack this thing on one tacked on scene or one tacked on episode that makes 11 or 13 coalesce is much better than everything, quote unquote, feeling organic in a room. And then at the end, you've dropped out storylines. We don't know what happened with such and such. We haven't been able to track this oh, character. That is like <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it happen a lot of times where the individual writer of the episode wants to make their episode great. That's right. And so they drop certain things or they undersell certain things. And then you get to three episodes later and you're like, well, I guess and we, we never drop serviced it. the thing. Yeah. Right. But and so it's like, no one's going to remember that really weird expo scene. Nobody's going <laughs> to really care that two out of 13 were a little wonky. What they're going to look at, look at is the entire experience. Yeah. And if you needed one, that was slow and people are going to talk shit about in Entertainment Weekly this week for an entire season that was great. Take the one. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's something really um, interesting about how people watch TV now. Right. Because, yeah. yes. you know, when we were growing yes. up, it, it was episode to episode. You know, you could watch a series sure. and drop out for three episodes and still know what's yes. going on. But now we tell these we tell these twelve hour narratives or ten yep. hour narratives. Super serialized. And so, and so just like a movie, you have moments where. You drop the tension a little bit, you set things up, and then you come back to kill them at the end. I want to ask you one thing about something you said, sure. because it's something that Shu and I talk a lot about. Again, it's craft geekiness. I can some I like what you said about planning, but I sometimes find that constricting. Do you ever find things that are so well-planned constricting, or do you always feel like you can find your own creativity and voice within the plan that exists? Uh, I, I, Both, but I definitely skew to the latter. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the reason is, is because I feel like tent poles are more my friend than, than actual like prescriptive. This is what happens every episode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now I will be clear. Ozark did break down that way. Like you knew it was like, if you worked out Wendy's line, you knew that in order for us to get Wendy to X, this had to happen here, mm -hmm. here, here, and here. Right. And we were planning out like this has to happen by three. This has to happen by four. Unlike a lot of shows that'll be like, well, we can kick that to three. We can kick that to four. We can kick that, you know, if, mm -hmm. if the story, there's only, you probably only get one or two kicks in Ozark before it's like, oh, well now it's here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now you have to handle it. And I really appreciate that method for the exact thing that we were talking about before, which is you don't want to lose a storyline or at the end you feel like you haven't serviced somebody. And so that can get constricting. Mm -hmm. Like you're like, man, fuck, like, I don't want to write that. It doesn't fit in this episode. All right, well, then go put it back in the episode. You said it didn't fit in before, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> and so for me, that's the thing, that's the much like acting, it's the art and the science of it. So yes, there is an art and I want to be able to tell what feels organic, but also if I want to land this plane the way I want to land this plane, we might not, just in real life, I might have to file my taxes. <laughs> I might have to do some shit I don't feel like doing right. in this episode so I can do what I want later. Uh -huh. And one quick follow-up question, then I'll let Shu jump back in, which is Ozark and, and Animal Kingdom currently are are very structured shows. I mean, like you guys are telling these sort of intricate, you know, on Animal Kingdom, it's these intricate heists and on Ozark, it's this like, you know, epic crime story. How much of that, how much of the planning for the overall season comes from the showrunner 
and how much of the uh, of the planning and these intricacies come from the, collectively from the room? Uh, for Ro- Ozark, again, I know I sound like a freaking Chris Mundy stand. He knows where he <laughs> wants to land, mm-hmm. but the best idea in the room wins. Okay. How do we how we get there? Let's figure it out. We got four months. Um, mm. with, with Animal Kingdom, we just don't have as much time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, um, you know, Shu came in under one uh, showrunner. I came in under the showrunner before her. My best friend, Eli, shout out to Why the Last Man on FX. Um, <laughs> it, they, they come in with far more figured out. They have to. We have two weeks to Blue Sky. Gotcha. So we're doing a lot more shading where they have more ideas of how they want things to go. Where it's like I said, Ozark just has more time. Got you. So, Vanessa, talk to you. You mentioned Emmy uh, a lot of times. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? How you got to the Emmys? What 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 the Emmy is actually for? Tell us all about the the world of an Emmy winner. Yeah. Well, her name is Sheila, and she sits on my uh, the Emmy's bookshelf. Name is I named her Sheila. <laughs> I thought the Emmy's uh, name was Emmy. Oh no no no! Her <laughs> name is Sheila. All right. Um. You know, the the first year of Giants, both James and I were nominated for um, for Best Actor and Actress in a Digital Drama. Mm-hmm. And then the next year when we had the writer's room, we realized like, okay, we have a real shot here at making something great. Or at least something that was like, I mean, it was great, don't get me wrong. But at least something that is comparable to, in a digital space, that's comparable to something that would be on air or on a streamer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just put a lot of time and attention into it. And so when the Emmy nominations rolled around, we racked it up like we had more we were like the most nominated show that year at the daytime emmys wow and eli actually sent me a meme that was like you guys beat sesame street (laughs) um (laughs) (laughs) um but you know doing it all is really interesting and that's also a whole other topic because you know you have to i was in the animal kingdom room at the time and uh you're getting dressed and you're doing tcas and you're having to do all these and like Writers don't really love actors and, and they specifically don't love when you're acting. So it was like almost had to like compartmentalize these two worlds, um, which I hope not to have to do. I worked on a Mindy Kaling show this summer and Mindy's like, fuck that. You can do both. Um, <laughs> and she is doing a lot of both. But, you know, we we got nominated for Emmys for for my personally for uh, the drama itself because I wrote on it writing um, and acting. And then I won the Emmy for acting. And it was surreal. Like you grow up and you see those shows and you're like, oh shit. Like, I don't know that I ever really sat and was like, oh, I'm going to be up there one day. I just wanted to have enough money to buy Jordans. Um, oh. So like, that's, ah, that's, that's what drives me. Okay, that's wait. what drives Sherman Payne. That's what drives me too. So let's, hard left. Let's talk. What, what are Vanessa's favorite Jordans? What right can- now it's the off-whites okay. I have, um, but that's only because I waited so long to get them. I felt like that was a gift to myself for Which a development the, project. Is this the off-white fours that I saw you post about? Yes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Um, and by the but, way, Nike, if you're listening, which you're not, come on, man. Women sizing only, like, give me Yeah, like, no, I, it was a mess for y'all. I wore size to, 14. Like, come on, guys, please. But like, I post- had to um I had to get them on StockX, <laughs> which really sucked because I dropped a guap on them, but I felt like it's what I deserve after I, I signed a deal. Anyway. You deserve um, it. But thank you. Um, but what I've realized is that a lot of my ones are kind of collecting dust right now. I've been in the Bel Airs a lot. Mm. Um, and mm. I don't know what it is, um, but I just did a, a photo shoot for my uh, for my book that's coming out in May, and I 
the my publicist was like, I want to make sure that it's all like editorial and I will send you the picture, Sharon. It is a pair of Jimmy Choo's, a pair of Versace heels and seven pairs of Jordans. Love it. And her and she was like flipping out. She's like, this is not couture. This is not couture. But I was in fucking ball gowns and ones. I was in like Love I was it. in a ball gown and some Spider-Man's. And she's like, oh, I get it now. I was like, yeah, you have to get it now. Anyway, um, my son, my son loves the. I mean, the the when those Spider Man ones came out, I mean, they were just like the probably for your kid too. I don't know. Did you get Did you get him the Spider Man? No, I I I got him um, the re release of the Chicago's because Mm -hmm. of the coloring. He won't fuck it up on the playground. He fucked up his Bel Airs the other day, and I just took the shoes from him. (laughs) He's five. He could care less. But I just took the shoes. Nope. Sorry, those shoes are coming back to mom. You need You need to learn some damn respect. This is heat. This is heat. You need to respect (laughs) it. All right. Sorry. We got way off track there. Uh, Yeah. Actually, I'm looking at them right now because I took them from him. Um, And I teach at Loyola Marymount. I teach screenwriting. And he came home from school while I was teaching. And like my class laughed at me because I was like, give me your shoes. How did you you get purple on them? Give me your shoes. Um, But yeah, I forget. Oh, yeah. So like, you know, all, all of this is happening. And uh, nobody really respects it as far as the writing world. Eli did because Eli uh, came from acting as well. And so you get this Emmy and now you're kind of trying to figure out what is the next move for me? Like, do I push more into acting? Do I take a pause on writing? But writing just continues to be a what moves. And also it's the only place that I'm able to play the roles that I want to play because Mm -hmm. I know who the fuck those people are because I wrote them myself or my friends wrote them. And so that's actually how I just, whenever you guys see me in anything, it's because Issa called or Lena hit or somebody was like, Hey, you want to do this? Mm -hmm. Or this is coming. They, they told me to call you. Um, It's, it's always about friends looking out and, to the point of the the article earlier, it's so frustrating because when you're coming out and getting critically acclaimed for your performances, but nobody will book you <laughs> except your homies, like it's very frustrating. Yeah, so it's it's another big part of the article, which we'll talk about. Is that that essentially black people are almost solely responsible for hiring other black people. Yeah, no one. It's like no one else does it. (laughs) Well, it was interesting because even the network, which I will send you guys, my pilot that's at JWP, Mm -hmm. even the even the network, it's always really interesting because I always find that white execs love the language. They love because I because I write like how we speak, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of like there's a lot of like code switching and stuff like that Mm -hmm. in it, which is authentic to my life. So I wrote it there. But um, but it's always interesting because if you give it to an exec that is not white, and I mean, do I truly mean that? If it any other ethnicity, they totally see it. They see where it's going. They get it. White execs almost exclusively, but almost one hundred percent of the time, say, "I love this, but I don't see it." Like yeah. I, I love the language, but I don't see where it goes. And it's so funny because the I have almost the exact same reps as Chris Mundy because he made them sign me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The first time that we went to my management company, um, they passed because they were just like, okay, she's staffed. Great. <laughs> the second time I went, there was a different person who, uh, his name is Faisal. He's my manager now. Also, Laura uh, Leonard, who was there at the time, <clears throat> excuse me, they read it and they read it from a completely different lens because they came from a different background. Mm. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. This is this is a game changer. So I I got with my management company on the second go round because they were just like, no, she writes really great dialogue, but I don't get it. And now everywhere I go, people are like, we wish we had the network. 
But since somebody else has it, can you write something like the network? Um, <laughs> so it's, it's just this weird thing that like the gatekeepers don't even all the way know the people that they're keeping the gate for. No, not, <laughs> not, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. And it does take a, it's sort of, you know, shout out to the white allies. It does take yeah, a really, out. it takes a big backbone to say, I, this isn't for me. This isn't my cultural lens, but I still find the value in it. I'm going to promote it and send it up the chain. That is, I think, something that is very, very difficult. It takes real, real courage to do that. So shout out to the people who can, for sure. see, who can see past their own, you know, cultural limitations. For Last sure. thing we wanted to get into, Shu, uh, was just discussing what Vanessa's working on now, what's coming up, what yeah. she's excited about, what's her development. Like Sherman, I have 700 jobs. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, right now, I am in development. Um, I wrote a feature last summer for Warner, which was fun. The feature, I don't know if I like features. It was still mm. a good experience. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I just like the collaborative room experience, I think, better. I'm but, in Vanessa, uh, I feel yes. I feel such a strong kinship with you, but we are on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, that shouldn't that it, shouldn't be surprising. It's, I, I, you love the collaborative nature of rooms, and I love to be alone in some dark room that. in my office, <laughs> some dark room in my house, alone toiling over a feature for like three no. months with nobody bothering me. If if <laughs> I will call the same person seventeen times, like okay, what about this? And I, I just need some to know another human person heard my idea. And I bet um, that's James a lot of the time. It is. It is for it is for both of us. Yeah. Like we at. It's to the point now. I I see James three times a week. Mm -hmm. Um, but Sunday dinners, you guys are always invited. We always have Sunday dinner at my house, except you know, COVID stopped it for a second. But yeah, you know, we have Sunday dinner at my house so that I see, put eyes on folks every week. That's the southern grandma in me. Ooh, um, I, I'd love to go. <laughs> well, yeah. I dropped stuff off for you at the top of the year, Shoe. That's true, so, like, you did. That's true. Um, but it was like, good too. It's, but like we do that, but James and I like James will come through to work on stuff. When we wrote the Giants film, um, James was here two, three times a week. It was like I see him so much, but then we have the nerve to like find weird hours to be on the phone for like two hours, <laughs> throwing story ideas back and forth almost every day. Like my at this point, like he just knows how to be like, yeah, I think the character should hold on a second. Writer, get off your head. And then he's like, <laughs> he's so used to it now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I have uh, some development stuff coming. Mm -hmm. uh, so we wrote the, the feature film for Giants, mm -hmm. which now we're working with Issa and UTA to uh, figure out where it will live. Congrats. Thank Great. you. Let's see. I have development with Wayfair Studios for a new show. Uh, it's a pilot deal for creating a show around the Tahare Justice Center in D.C., which basically is a center that's been around since about 97 and works on getting immigrant women, both asylum and immigration, uh, a positive immigration status when they're like escaping harm or violence from their respective countries. I have a deal that I'm very excited about that I cannot talk about with who, but it's about mm -hmm. HBCU basketball and, and how we are keeping HBCU sports afloat. And I'm really, really excited about that. that. Wait, that's exciting. Shoot, dust off the big girls pilot. You're gonna get yourself <laughs> dust off the big girls pilot. Shoe wrote a basketball script. Dust off the well. Big interestingly, I text Shoe and I was like, "Did you go to HBCU?" He said, "No." I said, "Okay, I still pitch you for something anyway." Because I, I think it's gonna move a little faster than uh, we anticipated. Uh, like I said, I was in Mindy Kaling's uh, 
College Girls Room, which is filming right now, hopefully will premiere in October. Great experience. Um, and then a show that I wrote on last two years ago is filming right now for Paramount Plus. Was CBS All Access, not Paramount Plus. It's called Guilty Party, and it's starring Kate Beckinsale, and that should come out later this year as well. Oh, wow, you're doing great. so much. You're about to have a stuff. big yeah. Um, <laughs> real quick, thirty seconds before we get to our final um, our final wrap up. Talk, tell us about your book. Oh, yeah. So I did that, too. Um, I wrote a book. Um, it's a collection of essays. It's called Far Away from Close to Home. And it's uh, basically about the last 10 years of my life and kind of what it feels like to uh, as a black millennial woman and what the concept of home really and truly is in America. Mm-hmm. And it delves with it goes into everything from what it's like with black motherhood and hoping that you're going to find your community and but being so far away from like kinship. Um, dealing with, you know, meeting my biological father and is your biological family truly your home family or is it who you create? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also like it goes into my divorce, all that tea. Um, and then it goes at a lot of like the end of the book is um, a lot about the racial uprising of last summer and how America's the only home I know, but doesn't always feel like home and doesn't always feel safe. And so where do you go? Like what's the where where, where is home if you're a black American? So uh, yeah, it comes out May 4th. It's uh, published by Three Rooms Press, and I'm excited about it. It's it's the most vulnerable work I've done. I'm also extraordinarily nervous about it. But. I think it's going to do great, and I, and I can also great. see the TV series based off of it. I was too. just going to say that. Oh, thank you. I was you. just going to say that. It's coming. It's coming. I hope so. I told my manager to sell my shit. And I'm, I, I have samples. Shoe has samples. We're pitching for, <laughs> we're pitching for jobs, too. We're yeah. always looking for the next job. <laughs> We always. This whole podcast is just about us finding yeah, no, we just, really we, we just get people who are more talented than us in a in a contained space, and then really pitch ourselves for jobs. It's actually a trick. Nope, we don't even put the podcast out. We just no one... we just sell ourselves for jobs. I got you. I got you. That's sure. I don't know if I'll be able to provide you a dark cave of an office. We'll work, but... it, I'll work it out. We'll work it out. We'll work it out. Well, thank you very much for that uh, riveting conversation, Vanessa. You did great. Uh, I love to hear all your stories, but uh, you know we have a we have a time limit on this show, <laughs> and we got to wrap it up. So we're gonna get straight into everybody's favorite segment, which is "Don't Do That Shit," a segment where we give you a little bite-sized advice where we help your career grow. We help you become a better person and a better writer by telling you what not to do. Yes, everybody, it's "Don't Do That Shit." We have a guest today, Shu. So I would like to extend the offer of letting our illustrious guest go first. Vanessa, do you have a don't do that shit for us this week? I do. Um, and if it's been covered, I apologize if it's already been covered in the past. This is for staff writers and people whose first time it is in the room, including assistants. Don't talk so much. Mm. Listen more. <laughs> than, listen more than you speak. Even if you have amazing ideas, listen more than you speak. I have now been in several rooms where you know I came in as assistant, so I had the purview and I understood not to do it before I came in as a staff writer. But I've now been in several rooms where I've had to like be the person to text a staff writer, be like, "Sis, you're so great." <laughs> um and you know it's 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 just a and it's not even a hierarchy thing it just is you have to learn the rhythm and the pace of a room before you get in there so does the text actually say sis yes (laughs) (laughs) no but the text says sis you're so great like you have so many good ideas talk a little less but then i we have to talk i i generally the, the two times i've had to do it in the past couple of years um i ended up calling the person 
so that they understood like this is not about hierarchy. This is about just understanding the flow of a room. And if you're in a good room, which I've always been in, people are going to let you talk. But if you don't have that social skill to read that they don't want to sit and listen to your story anymore, they want to break this episode, people will turn on you fast. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And I'll say that it it really is a social skill. It's like any yes. other situation. You have to read the room. You yep. have to have the social awareness to know when it's appropriate to talk and when it's not. And I think some people... Uh, we talked about this a little bit last time, Shu. Some people are just so excited to get in the room. They feel like they have to be integral to every single yeah. thing. Yes. So they end up talking, talking, talking. And it's really not your job, especially if you're a brand new writer coming into That's a new right. situation. Yes. That's right. But nobody tells you that. And so you they don't. you totally yeah. understand the instinct of wanting to go in and show your worth and yeah. show yeah. that they hired you for a reason. Exactly. Yeah, you um, think you have you to prove it. yourself, you know. Yeah, yep. it's true. Uh, That's a good one. That's a great one. Shoot, I'll let you go next. I'll 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 bring us home today. I'll I'll back clean up. Cool, no problem. My don't do that shit today is specifically about pilots and pilot endings. So, do not end your pilot with an ending. End your pilot with a beginning. Let me let me go back. Let me let me let me break that down. A I mean bit. that. Listen, man. That's a word, Shu. Yes, please. Like Funk Flex, Funk Flex just dropped a bomb, and he's starting the song over again. Please rewind. Don't don't and, and this is specifically with pilots. Obviously, features would be different. Features you want to end your feature, wrap it up, have it feel nice and cleanly, tidy, tidily put together. But a pilot, you don't want to do that. A pilot's ending wants to feel like the beginning of something new because you got to be able to have it such that we've ended some of the story. We've wrapped something up in the pilot episode, but really more importantly is that we've set the stage to begin a new story that's going to take us through the season or take us through the series as a whole. So think of the ending of pilots as the beginning of something new. Love that show. Thank you for that word. Thank you sure. for that word, Deacon Shu. Uh, <laughs> last thing, uh, you know, I'll, this mine real quick. Don't do this shit. I said something similar before, but this is a slightly different twist. Don't take the phrase, write what you know, too literally. Uh, <laughs> people sometimes think that that means that you rip details from your real life and then they must exist exactly how they existed in real life on the page. This is also a word. Thank yes. you. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's it doesn't have to... That's not what it means. You know, I think Vanessa made a very good point today. She said, I'm from a city that's very much like the city that we portray in Animal Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So she's writing what she knows based on being in a similar city. She didn't say that, um, well, in 1999 in my city, the mayor did this. So it has to be like this. No, that's not that's not the way it works. You're not taking real details from every single thing you've experienced in life and putting them in cement in your story. Don't get so caught up in the way that things actually were. Your life is very interesting to you and what you've experienced is very interesting to you, exactly how it happened. But it's probably not that interesting to other folks. And also, other folks don't know those details, so it's not important to them. They want to see a good story. So write what you know means generally put in your life experiences. If you come from, for example a family with a bad divorce, you might be great at writing a story that with a family with a bad divorce. It doesn't mean that you have to put in the exact details of what your dad said to your mom when he walked out of the door and that mm -hmm. nobody can ever tell you to change that scene. 
So don't do this shit. Don't take right what you know too literally. That's good. I love that. I always think that that I always yeah. I always try to think of right what you know like you know there are common emotions that we know. You know what I yes. mean that we could sort of connect to. So yeah, I love that man. That's great. That's great. Uh, shoot, that's all. That's all that's we got, it, bro. Yeah. yeah. Thanks again to Vanessa. Thank you guys for having me. You have been listening to the Diversity Hires. I told you at the top of the episode. I'm going to tell you again. Find us across all social media at Div Hires Pod, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Also, check out the website, thediversityhires.com. I'm your host, Sherman Payne. And I am Shukri Hassan Tillman. This show is produced by the wonderful August K. Burton, AKB. Shout out. As Sherman said, you can find us on all avenues of social media, but you can also find us at thediversityhires.com. You can join our newsletter there. You can write to us. You can tell us uh, comments about the show. You can also give us some suggestions about what you'd like to hear. We always love that. And again, you can sign up on for the newsletter so you can get all the resources from episode to episode that AKB puts together, all the things that we talk about, so links and resources, etc., most importantly, I always like to say, please, please, please share the podcast. Share the podcast with your friends, your grandma, your teachers, the firefighter, anybody, your, the man that cuts your grass. If it's you that's cutting your grass, maybe, you know, the, I don't know, the trash man, whoever. Just share the podcast. People, we need you to listen. All right. We'll see you uh, next week on the Peace. University Hires.